Section 3 of On Chronic Alcoholic Intoxication With an Inquiry into the Influence of the Abuse of Alcohol as a Predisposing Cause of Disease by William Marset. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Causes Predisposing to Chronic Alcoholism It is a well-known fact that persons addicted to excessive drinking are not equally affected by it. The nature of the beverage, the quantity taken in, and the time during which the habit is indulged, the age, sex, temperament, habits, and occupation of the patient, the quality and quantity of the food taken, are so many circumstances modifying the action of alcohol on the body, and which may predispose it to suffer from chronic alcoholism. Quality taken. It might be considered at first sight that the more spirit or alcohol the beverage contains, the greater its deleterious action on the nervous system, and that we might consequently, from the known portion of alcohol and fermented drinks, establish a scale showing precisely their comparative tendency to bring on chronic alcoholism. Generally speaking, this rule holds good, and it will be found that raw spirits are the most hurtful. Then follow wine, beer, and cider. Except, however, in a general point of view, the injurious properties of alcoholic liquors do not always depend on the proportion of spirits they contain. McNish furnishes us with some valuable information on the effects of the different qualities of alcoholic stimulants. In his opinion, the safest way to use spirits is in the form of grog. Cold toddy ranks next in safety, then warm toddy, cold punch, and raw spirits. He adds, with respect to malt liquor, it is better to drink porter than strong ale, and advisable when accustomed to malt liquor to exercise, in order to avoid becoming fat and stupid and predisposed to apoplexy. For wine drinkers, the safest wines are, according to the same author, those possessed of the most diuretic properties, and which create the least headache and fever as hawk claret burgundy brucellus and hermitage port sherry or madeira and sweet wines are apt to produce acid on weak stomachs claret is the most wholesome wine that is known mcnish also recommends not to drink of too many different kinds of wine at one sitting the fact of intoxication being rapidly produced by mixtures of different wines is generally known although usually disregarded when the temptation of a great variety of wines is offered to the guests at a dinner party Hotel and tavern keepers, being frequently called upon to share the drink of their customers, are very liable to suffer from the variety of the beverages they consume. I have met with cases where individuals not only indulge in many different kinds of stimulants, but mix one liquor with another in the same glass, ale and gin, for example, being drunk together. Cider, and such wines as possess little spirit, and are more or less acid, are frequently and with comparative safety used in warm countries, and according to Roche may even prevent certain diseases, especially those resulting from a deficiency of the biliary secretion. Lehman observes it is owing to cider's great cheapness that in several eastern cantons of Switzerland, such as Thurgovie, Appenzell, St. Gall, and Zurich, the results from the abuse of alcohol so common in other cantons are unknown. By consulting, as I have done, the medical practitioners in this country, one becomes convinced that cider is not attended with unfavorable effects, unless it be made from green fruit, or be ill-prepared, or undergoing decomposition. There is no doubt, however, adds Roche, that the abuse of cider may become the source of disease. Delbeck states that cider does not agree with many people, producing frequently diarrhea and various forms of indigestion. Footnote, these are influenced as voisins alcoholics 
sur la santé, 1854, and footnote. We may observe that even wines of the same quality, bearing the same generic name, and grown in adjoining districts, do not act with equal power upon the brain. Thus I am informed by a gentleman who has had ample opportunities of making himself acquainted with the properties of Rhine wine, that the grapes grown in some adjoining districts along the Rhine do not produce wines equally heady. I believe many individuals will find that wine or beer does not exert the same action on their brain as an equal quantity of a mixture of spirits and water, prepared so as to contain a proportion of alcohol similar to that which exists in the fermented juice of grape or in malt liquor. This circumstance may be accounted for by assuming that the alcohol of spirits, which is diluted, differs as to its influence on the brain from that of beer or wine, which is not distilled. At all events, we know positively that these two kinds of alcohol have not the same influence upon the sense of taste, for a wine connoisseur will be able to tell without difficulty whether distilled alcohol has been added to a sample of wine or whether the wine contains none but its natural alcohol. This fact showing that there is certainly a difference between the alcohol of distilled and that of non-distilled spirituous stimulants. Possibly, also, they are not with equal readiness removed from the body or decomposed therein. It is remarkable that distilled alcohol added within certain proportions to port wine is converted, after a lapse of some years, into the non-distilled kind, its present being no longer discernible by the taste. Quantity taken. I had once an opportunity of overhearing a conversation between two laborers, the eldest, who appeared to have nearly reached the age of seventy, in endeavoring to convince the other that the best way to attain old age was to drink freely of beer and spirits, and this, he observed, was a result of his own experience. It is certain that there are exceptions to the general rule that frequent excesses in alcoholic beverages will ultimately destroy health. These exceptions, however, are but very few. We must remember that the word excess is a case of intemperance, it is not absolute, but to a certain degree relative and that an allowance of spirituous beverage, all but harmless in one instance, might be attended with dangerous effects in another. The fact that some can indulge very freely in alcoholic drinks without suffering from them is illustrated by the following instance. J. M. B., age 49, a hawker, was engaged 30 years ago working in a distillery at Bristol, and during the seven years he was thus employed, used to drink rather less than a pint of gin daily. He traveled afterwards to Devonshire, where he drank a great deal of cider, from which he felt no further inconvenience than pain in the stomach and purging. For the last four months he has been taking seven or eight glasses of rum a day. He exhibits no symptom whatever of alcoholism, and implies to be treated merely for an eruption of acne on the face. It will be observed that most of my patients suffering from chronic alcoholism drank to a considerable extent both malt liquor and spirits. Thus, W.B., case 1, drank one pint of gin, and two or three and occasionally six or eight pints of beer daily. E.C., case 15, took half a pint of brandy and five or six pints of stout daily. G.R., case 18, drank from three glasses to a pint of spirits daily, and four or five pints of ale. A very large amount of alcohol was taken by H.H., case 46, and T.D., case 47. The former, aged 42, contracted the habit of drinking when 14 or 15 years old, and from that time to the last three or four months has taken three or four pints of rum and as much beer daily. Footnote. This enormous quantity must be considered as an approximation to the truth. I cannot help thinking that the patient drank frequently less than 
his own statement might lead us to believe. End footnote. The latter, also aged 42, has taken for a period of eight or ten years an allowance of ten small glasses of brandy, as much gin, and about five pints of beer daily. In some cases, a much smaller allowance of stimulants suffice to bring on a disordered state of the nervous system, as, for example, in that of G.J., case 14, who took three or four pints of beer daily and no spirits, and this man became intoxicated if he drank no more than two pints of ale at one sitting. The following case shows how remarkably liable some individuals are to suffer from a very small amount of alcoholic beverage. G.B., age 28, case 35, a stoker in the House of Parliament, admitted as an outpatient at Westminster Hospital on February 24th, 1859, has always been of sober habits, and was only drunk once in his life, when no more than twelve years of age. His daily allowance of beer has been one pint, and he has taken no spirits. Three years ago he became a teetotaler, because he found that even so little as one pint of beer daily did not agree with his health. He has been troubled with symptoms of chronic alcoholism for the last three years. Time the habit has been indulged. A very remarkable circumstance connected with chronic alcoholism is the fact of its occurring, or of the symptoms becoming frequently aggravated, long after the habit of drinking to excess has been given up, and even occasionally after complete abstinence for some time from alcoholic stimulants. As I am anxious to convince the reader of the truth of this statement, I shall perhaps be allowed to enter into the particulars of a case which illustrates it. T.C., age 35, a carpenter, has drunk hard during ten years, taking from six to ten pints of beer daily. During this time he has had several slight attacks of delirium tremens, and for two or three years suffered from chronic alcoholism, which induced him one day, about six years ago, to give up drinking entirely. He says he then became a teetotaler because drink did not agree with his health, making him nervous, giddy, and subject to trembling. He was restless at night, felt weak, his appetite was failing, and he was getting thinner and weaker. After adhering to total abstinence for a period of six months, he again returned to his former habit, although not to the same extent. On one occasion, however, he drank more than usual, and according to his own expression, became raving mad. During a day, not so much, however, from disturbance of the brain as from pain in the stomach. T.C. then determined upon giving up forever hard drinking, and since then, that is, for the last two years, has adhered to two pints of ale a day. Under this allowance, his health greatly improved. The nervous uneasiness, giddiness, and trembling from which he had been suffering left him. Entirely, question mark, although his appetite remained deficient. Three weeks ago, being much overworked and worried with family troubles, his health again gave way. Although he positively states he did not then or since assuming habits of sobriety, exceed his reduced allowance of beer. From that time he has suffered from a return of the old symptoms, namely nervous uneasiness, giddiness, and faintness, dimness of sight, and musculae volitantes, sleep disturbed by nightmare. For the last fortnight his strength has left him, so much so that seven times he has been obliged to discontinue his work. He is a smoker, but has not smoked lately to a greater extent than previously. Much smoking does not agree with him. This case is an interesting illustration of symptoms of chronic alcoholism, occurring long after intemperate habits have been given up. I may also bring forward, as further examples, several cases reported elsewhere in this volume. Thus, C.A., Case 2, 
turned teetotaler seven weeks before applying for relief at the Westminster Hospital. G.R., case 18, drank from youth from three glasses of spirits to a pint, and four or five pints of ale daily, until about eleven months previous to admission, when he gave up completely both beer and spirits. C.P., case 21, took twelve pints of beer daily for nine years, but during the last four years drank only two or three pints of ale a day. Many other instances of the same kind will be found recorded in the table. Yet, notwithstanding their abstinence, these individuals fell a prey to past excesses. I have been led to observe that the injurious effects of long-continued abuse of alcoholic stimulants are frequently not developed to any extent until the occurrence of another circumstance, which is the immediate cause of the attack. It has not been possible for me to determine satisfactorily whether an attack of chronic alcoholism may supervene long after the individual has given up drinking, and without his having at all suffered from the nervous derangement known to result from frequent excesses. But this much may be safely stated, that in the great majority, if not in every case, the patient's constitution has been so far affected that the slightest cause will be sufficient to startle or frighten him, produce giddiness, headache, and keep him from sleeping at night, yet without preventing him from attending to his occupation or proving of any material inconvenience. And such patients are very liable to a regular attack of chronic alcoholism from some cause independent of drink. Age. According to McNish, a child nursed by a drunken nurse is hardly ever healthy, is especially subject to derangements of the digestive orders, and to convulsive affections. Dr. North has observed this latter disease to be instantly arrested by transferring the child to a sober woman. McNish adds that the habit, in some parts of Scotland, of giving raw whiskey to babies a few days old turns them pallid, and they become emaciated, fretful, subject to convulsions, and every variety of disorders of the stomach, including vomiting and diarrhea, which may end in death. The following investigation undertaken by Dr. Hunter, reported by McNish and Carpenter, shows that alcoholic drinks, even in moderate quantities, do not agree with young children. He submitted to experiment his two children, both of them having been previously unused to wine. To the one, a child of five years old, he gave every day a full glass of sherry, and to the other, of nearly the same age, he gave an orange. In the course of a week, a very marked difference was perceptible in the pulse, urine, and evacuations from the bowels of the two children. The pulse of the first child was raised, the urine high-colored, and the evacuations destitute of their usual quantity of bile. In the other child, no change whatever was produced. He then reversed the experiment, giving the first the orange, and to the second the wine, and the result was corresponded. The child who had an orange continued well, and the system of the other became straightway disordered, as in the first experiment. A young man betaking himself to the disgusting habit of drinking to excess may be considered as very liable to become intoxicated. Should his constitution not be strong and healthy, or should he not be accustomed to active habits, the first occurrence of disease may prove fatal, or, at all events, give him such warnings as will effectually prevent his returning to drink. But there are other young drunkards, gifted with strong and healthy constitutions, and engaged in occupations requiring great muscular exertion in the open air, who are enabled to rid themselves rapidly of the alcoholic poisons. For instance, men employed as coal porters, hawkers, laborers, will be able to resist for many years the baneful consequences of intemperance. But at 41 years of age, those who have habitually indulged 
to excess and alcoholic liquors begin to suffer, probably because that is the time of life when youth and health often begin to depart. One individual becomes a prey to gout, another to rheumatism, another to pulmonary affections, and another to disorders of digestion. Now those very diseases are known to predispose greatly to chronic alcoholism, and it is therefore not to be wondered at that this disorder should usually make its appearance at the above-mentioned period. The youngest patient coming under my treatment for chronic alcoholism was 18 years old, and the oldest 75. Sex. Women appear to be much less subject to suffer from the long-continued abuse of alcoholic liquors than men. Indeed, I have only seen four or five cases of chronic alcoholism among the female sex. The following is a remarkably painful and interesting instance of chronic alcoholism, complicated with unmistakable symptoms of melancholia which occurred in women. Hearing I had given particular attention to the means of relieving the baneful effects of hard drinking, she called at the Westminster Hospital on the 16th of March, 1860, for the purpose of consulting me. She is 49 years old. Her father died at the age of 63, having been in a weak state of mind for the last even years of his life. Her mother was very subject to hysteria. She had a brother addicted to hard drinking. She was attacked with nervous affection about 20 years ago, which lasted for six months, and left her odd and eccentric in her manners has enjoyed, however, since then very good health, and was a robust and cheerful woman up to the 20th of June, 1858. Three or four years ago, and probably before that period, she contracted the habit of drinking, according to her own statement, about three half-quarters of rum and three or four pints of beer daily. But after reading the details of this case, it will become evident that she took a great deal more. I have asked her why she first took to drinking, and she informed me that it was from keeping company with a young man who was a drunkard and she was constantly in the society of people who spent their time in drinking on the above-mentioned day in june 1858 a favorite cat this woman had kept for 14 years was stolen from her and she was greatly distressed at this loss the following night she fell ill her face and hands became swollen and she was seized with great trembling throughout the whole body crying and feeling very wretched the following day when going out into the street she felt as if very drunk, not knowing what she was doing, and people appearing to her as if tumbling about. This was the beginning of an attack of delirium tremens, which lasted about a fortnight. On recovering, her intellect, memory, and other mental faculties had become completely blunted, and she continued subject to trembling, although, according to her statement, she then gave up hard drinking, taking no more ever since than a pint of beer daily. After this attack of delirium tremens, she often forgot the time of day, or did not know where she was. Everything looked dirty to her, and everybody ragged, and she no longer knew her former acquaintances. In the course of July 1859, she became very violent, breaking the crockery, tearing up the carpet, and destroying the china ornaments. This lasted about a week. She positively denies having been drinking previous to this attack, and cannot tell what brought it on. From that time she has been afflicted with symptoms of melancholia. There has been no return of morbid excitement. She is now in a wretched state of mental depression, and it appears to her as though she was alone in this world. At times she fancies her friends are pursuing her to place her in a madhouse, or according to her own expression, she feels as a figure moving about and acting mechanically. She is always wishing to do something, 
and if she takes some work in hand, she cannot manage it, has but little sleep, and on awakening she does not know she has been asleep. She would give or do anything for a good night's rest. In the midst of tears and lamentations, she exclaims, Oh, sir, it is all through the horrid drink. She is subject to curious aberrations of the senses. She can neither smell nor taste, and her sight is much impaired. The tactile sensation is likewise blunted, and it seems to her as if she could not hold anything. It is much trouble with musque volitantes. She has not been subject to headache, but to throbbing in the head and palpitations. Since the attack of delirium tremens, she attempted, on two occasions, to commit suicide with laudanum. One evening, when going to bed, she took six pennyworth, about six drachms of laudanum at once, and kept it on the stomach for a whole night. It produced no sleep, but made her very giddy and faint. She vomited during the whole of the next day, and then recovered. I have not in my notes the particulars of the other attempt. She says she has taken a large quantity of laudanum as a medicament, which she believes to have done her a great deal of harm. Several nights in succession she has dosed herself with one or two pennyworths, about one or two drachms of laudanum or black drop. I cannot dismiss this case without remarking that the abuse of alcohol is not the only cause of disease. There was obviously a strong predisposition to insanity, but from the history of the case, and the patient insisting so positively on her belief that drink was the cause of her illness, I feel assured the abuse of alcohol was the exciting cause of the attack, of which delirium tremens was the beginning. This case struck me as an interesting combination of chronic alcoholism and melancholia. Magnus Huss accounts for his having met with but few cases of chronic alcoholism among females, by assuming not that the male sex are more predisposed to alcoholism than women, but that men indulge in alcoholic liquors more than women. Of 139 patients treated by Huss, during three years, there were 123 men and 16 women. It is well known that delirium tremens is not frequent among females. Roche states that in his opinion this phenomenon is not only to the circumstance that fewer women drink than men, for the disproportion is too considerable not to depend upon other causes. In 170 cases of delirium tremens observed by Rayer, there were only seven females affected. Bang at Copenhagen only observed 10 among 456 patients. Hugh and Goldberg only noticed one case in 173. Kruger, Housen, one in 16, and the directors of the hospital at Christiana, one in 11. Temperament. It would be very interesting to determine precisely the influence of temperament as a predisposing cause of chronic alcoholism. This object, however, will be very difficult to attain because such patients have invariably a nervous constitution from the effects of alcohol when they apply for relief, and it is not easy to ascertain their temperament previous to their taking to intemperate habits. Whatever be the influence of this predisposing cause, there is no doubt that those who enjoy a sound constitution and a strong health are much less liable to suffer from chronic alcoholism than others, and vice versa. According to Dalbeck, the more plethoric and sanguine the temperament, the more the nervous system is irritable, and subject to suffer from alcohol, individuals having a lymphatic temperament being better able to stand spirituous beverages. Madness Huss expresses a similar opinion. He classifies the different temperaments as follows according to their degree of influence in predisposing to chronic alcoholism. First, the sanguine temperament. Second, the phlegmatic. Three, the bilious. Fourth, the lymphatic. Fifth, the nervous. 
Habits. The habits of an individual are among the most important of the causes predisposing to chronic alcoholism. As a general rule, habits of indolence and idleness, independently of their acting as a strong inducement to drink, favor slow poisoning by alcohol. Where the disorder is limited to the mildest symptoms, I have repeatedly observed it to be checked in a remarkable degree by having recourse to exercise of the mind and body, and I have noticed individuals accustomed to hard work becoming affected with symptoms owing to past excesses, because they had no longer any work to do. Smoking Tobacco Tobacco, more especially that of the strongest kind, undoubtedly predisposes the nervous system to suffer from the long-continued abuse of spirituous drinks, an observation which is not without importance and interest, considering that the habit of drinking is frequently accompanied by that of smoking. If it be remembered that the poisoning by tobacco fumes is attended with giddiness, trembling, and other symptoms referable to a disordered condition of the nervous system, it will obviously follow that the habit of smoking, and especially of smoking to excess, will act conjointly with that of drinking in bringing on an attack of chronic alcoholism. The following are a few cases illustrating this fact. H.E., case 33, a clerk admitted on the 21st of February, 1859, drank at Christmas last a considerable amount of ale and gin, and has been in bad health since that time. Suffering from trembling in the morning, weakness, and loss of memory, and has lately been unable to sleep at night. This patient had contracted the habit of smoking a great deal of shag tobacco, to which circumstance he himself partly ascribes his illness. E.C., case 15, six years ago, took to the habit of drinking about half a pint of brandy daily and five or six pints of stout. After keeping up this allowance for nearly four years, he reduced it to eight pints of porter daily and continued with that amount up to the time of his admission on the 16th of December, 1853. He has suffered from the last four years from chronic alcoholism, one of the symptoms being trembling in the morning, especially when he has drunk freely the evening before. He states that he has been a hard smoker and has observed that smoking increased the trembling. A.P., Case 41, Act 40, a gas fitter, admitted on the 21st March, 1859, had been in the habit of drinking for the last two or three years six or seven pints of beer daily. Six or seven months ago he began to exhibit the symptoms of chronic alcoholism. About six weeks previous to admission, when smoking three quarts of an ounce of tobacco per day, he suddenly became worse, his nervous system having evidently been much affected by the use of tobacco. The habit of smoking being one so prevalent among those who are fond of alcoholic stimulants, and its effect being so directly connected with the slow poisoning from alcoholic beverages, an inquiry into this subject will not be out of place on the present occasion. It is difficult to conceive why boys take so much pleasure in smoking cigars or a pipe when out of sight of their parents or guardians. But vanity and pride probably here act a prominent part. Children desire to imitate their elders and show each other they can color a pipe or smoke a cigar to the very end, even if they have to pay the penalty of nausea and vomiting. Thus the individual contracts a pernicious habit, which he will find extreme difficulty in breaking off if obliged to do so in after life. When smoking is becoming a habit, it gradually ceases to cause sickness, although still occasionally nausea and giddiness, and finally the nausea and giddiness disappear, returning only on special occasions. It is then that tobacco smoking produces such pleasurable sensations as those resulting from the narcoticism of opium. When the imagination changes each successful puff of smoke 
and to every description of fanciful objects, when the bachelor forgets his solitude, the mind its troubles, and the body its pains. A painful impression on the mind is certainly soothed by smoking, and this is a frequent cause of the habit being contracted. One man will take to smoking to drown the disappointment of unsuccessful labors, and another to ally the affliction from the loss of a friend. Footnote. Smoking appears to have the property of diminishing the power of mental abstraction. It is probably on this account that when the mind is haunted by some painful idea, the act of smoking assists the effort of the will to dismiss it. End footnote. Smoking is also a frequent habit among those who are called upon to exercise much mental exertion, because it appears to possess the power of resting the mind when tired. When the body and mind are excited, and is usually the case after dinner, or post-pocula, or in a convivial meeting of friends, smoking is often resorted to as an instinctive means of keeping the excitement within certain limits. The very prevalent habit of smoking after dinner must have for its principal object that of allaying the discomfort arising from the stimulating action of the meal. At dinner, a glass of sherry madeira immediately follows the soup. These, along with port, being our strongest wines. At first sight, it does not appear rational to commence with the strongest wine, which must necessarily impair more or less the taste and stimulating effects of the weaker, such as claret and burgundy that may follow but it is found agreeable to begin by exciting the appetite with a powerful stimulant the more alcoholic the beverage the better it answers the purpose so much so that some are not satisfied with sherry after the soup but begin dinner with a glass of spirits the stomach is thus induced to take more than is required and after dinner a sensation of fullness is felt which is conveniently relived by a cup of strong coffee but now an uneasy feeling of heat and excitement is experienced from which the body partly recovers by means of a full-flavored cigar pipe. Finally, it is remarkable how much certain individuals can smoke on special occasions without its producing giddiness or sickness or any unpleasant feeling, the same persons being in general easily affected by alcohol. In all cases where the body and mind are excited within certain limits, smoking will be most easily tolerated, as for example after dinner, during the excitement from eating and drinking, in a party attended with the enjoyment of conversation or a sporting excursion when under the influence of sport and exercise and the stimulating power of open air i may perhaps be allowed to conclude these observations by advising young men whatever may be their position in life not to take to smoking as such habit is certainly not conducive to health to adults of a sound constitution who have contracted the habit of smoking to a moderate extent and do not feel worse for it I would recommend to smoke only after a meal, and that but seldom. Occupation. Such occupations will exhaust the body from their requiring great muscular exercise, especially when carried on indoors, favor the early development of chronic alcoholism, and occasionally, in these instances, a very small proportion of alcoholic beverage will be hurtful. Thus, individuals obliged to work hard in a confined place before a blazing fire as stokers on board steamers or in factories are very liable to suffer from spirituous stimulants the reader will perhaps remember the case of j b case thirty five a stoker in the house of parliament who at the early age of twenty three labored under chronic alcoholic intoxication t s case three an engineer on board a steamer consulted me for chronic alcoholism at the age of thirty three he had suffered previously from several attacks of delirium tremens I have already recorded the case 
of an engine driver contracting chronic alcoholism at 56, his immunity arising probably from a very robust state of health. The average age of these three cases is 37, while that of 47 patients whose ages have been reported in the synoptical table is 41. Traits affording very little or no exercise of the mind or body predispose also to suffer early, and consequently when young, from the habit of drinking. Thus, clerks, tailors, and other tradesmen, cab and cart drivers, are very liable to disorders of the nervous system arising from intemperance. The table of cases appended to this work shows the truth of the foregoing observation. E.B., case 9, a tailor, age 41. G.R., case 18, general dealer, age 38. G.M., case 19. Cushion maker, age 33. W.F., case 24. A carter, age 34. J.H., case 25. A shoemaker, at 27. W.P., case 26. A cabman, age 29. H.E., case 33. A clerk, age 24. There are, however, two instances reported of individuals of sedentary occupation suffering from chronic alcoholism at an advanced age. W.J., case 5, a shoemaker, age 75. N.D.V., case 27. Greengrocer, age 72. And if, reckoning the last two cases as exceptional, we take the average age of the patients of this class, we shall find it to be 32, whilst the average age of 47 patients is 41. Other occupations requiring much exercise in the open air also furnish our hospitals with a great number of cases of chronic alcoholic intoxication, but these individuals are not affected so young as those previously mentioned, their average age being 39, showing that, although much addicted to drinking, they are not particularly liable to suffer from chronic alcoholism. I allude especially to laborers, coal porters, sailors, hawkers, and carriers. There is no doubt but that in the higher class of society, a great number of cases of chronic alcoholism may be observed, although the disease is certainly most prevalent among those who attend our hospitals. Dr. Budd, alluding to the indigestion of drunkards connected with symptoms of chronic alcoholism, observes, Footnote, Dr. Budd, on the organic diseases and functional disorders of the stomach, page 290, and footnote. The kind of disorder we are considering is now seldom met with, except in the lower ranks of life. Half a century ago, hard drinking was common in the upper classes, and men of fortune were often sent to bath to restore the tone of their stomach by drinking of its waters. It is true that intoxication is now very seldom met with the upper classes of society, but from the disposition of many to suffer from alcohol taken even in comparatively moderate quantity, there must still exist a great number of individuals in comfortable as well as wealthy circumstances whose nervous system becomes affected from the effects of long-continued habit of drinking wine or spirits. Circumstances connected with the food taken. In addition to the above, there are other circumstances which appear to increase to a considerable extent the tendency of alcoholic drinks to produce chronic alcoholic intoxication, namely drinking early in the morning before breakfast, and consequently on an empty stomach, and living on a spare, solid diet. In the latter case, the beverage constituting nearly the whole of the food taken. It is a prevalent habit for laborers in some parts of the country to sleep in the tap rooms of public houses where they have a free night's lodging. And it is an interesting sight to see such work-worn individuals lying about in winter near the fireside on the floor, tables and benches, 
and enjoying as complete a rest as if they were in a comfortable bed. Early in the morning they awake, and most of them begin with beer spirits, commodities within their immediate reach, which they suppose will give them an appetite for breakfast, and keep out of the cold for the whole day. During the week they are called out in the fields, and must leave the table, but on Sunday these same men continue drinking from morning to evening, taking very little food, and as early as nine or ten o'clock a.m., symptoms of drunkenness in the taproom may be observed. I have no doubt that with many labors, the morning dram on an empty stomach is the cause of their suffering, sooner or later from chronic alcoholism. There is a class of men whose only nourishment for days in succession is beer. I allude more particularly to those who are employed in breweries. The stomach of these individuals becomes filled with nothing but beer, which must be absorbed with a much greater rapidity than during the normal process of digestion, when fluids taken as beverages become immediately mixed up with the food. And it is in no degree remarkable that this constant passage of alcohol from the stomach into the blood and brain should give rise to cerebral symptoms. Moreover, the appetite of such men for solid food is quickly blunted, not only on account of the physiological fact that alcohol diminishes the waste of the body, footnote, see appendix, and footnote, and consequently its requirement for new materials, but more especially, as I have already remarked, when alluding to the influence of alcohol on health, from the long-continued action of the fluid on the nerves and lining membrane of the stomach. This morbid state of the organs of digestion, by depressing the general standard of health, and by preventing the body from taking the amount of food required for its healthy nutrition, predisposes greatly to chronic alcoholism. End of section 3